Hello and welcome to the Ethics in Action podcast. I am your guest host, Alex Stubbs, a philosopher and postdoctoral fellow at the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. This podcast is part of a mini-series on the future of work, guest hosted by myself and James Hughes, Executive Director of the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, and a bioethicist and sociologist who serves as the Associate Provost for Institutional Research, Assessment, and Planning for the University of Massachusetts, Boston. In this series, we'll dive deep into some of the most pressing topics of our time regarding work, the influence of automation on the future of work, the appeal and purpose of work, its connection to meaningful living, the harms of the work ethic, and the idea of a shortened work week. We'll also tackle the issue of alienation in the workplace and discuss innovative policy proposals that could help us navigate the ever-changing landscape of 21st century work. We're happy to have you join us on the Ethics in Action podcast. Today, we're very excited to be joined by David Spencer. David is a professor of economics at the University of Leeds, whose research focuses on the economics and political economy of work. His uh, 2022 book, Making Light Work and End to Toil in the 21st Century, published by Polity Press, provides, I think, a really excellent discussion on the meaning of work and the value of leisure and is a depiction of what I take to be a, a sort of fairly underrepresented position in, in the future of workspace. So I believe many times throughout the book, you, you make clear your position as sort of a middle pathway for less but better work. And I'm excited to dig into exactly how you see this vision playing out. So David, thanks for joining us today. And we're happy to have you here for a conversation. Well, thanks for the invite. I appreciate it. So I, I actually, I want to start with a kind of personal question, if that's all right. Because I think it's rare that you meet an academic whose work isn't in some way deeply tied to their own commitments and personal evolution. What drew you to working on questions of work, both in its contemporary form and also possibilities for a more liberated form of work in the future? Wow, that's, that's a quite difficult question to answer. I mean, it's always you're asking me to go back in time and tell you of my history. Uh, okay. I mean, the short answer is that I've seen how works affected me and how works affected others. So I, I, I'm aware of its importance as an activity. So work has shaped me uh, for good and bad and it shaped those around me. And I, so, you know, observed, the importance of work and it, it drew my attention to it because of its importance. I think I've got a particular interest in the economics of work. So I'm conscious that economists have got a, a kind of a blind spot when it comes to work, which sort of drew me in when I learned economics for the first time, I, I was often sort of struck by the absence of work. So, you know, there's the sort of a, in simple terms, there's a, there's a trade-off which workers are assumed to face between income and leisure, and that that seems strange strange to me because it doesn't mention work. It's a trade-off between income and leisure, where work is a means to income and work is a substitute for leisure. There's but it's it's a workless, laborless model, and mm. that always struck me. Others have made that argument, but that that drew me in. Uh, so 
from an academic perspective, but then obviously at a practical level, work mattered. I mean, just just to give it, I've done lots of bad jobs as well in my past as a student, you know, worked on a production line and, you know, I saw work, how degrading it could be uh, and contrast that then with examples of creative work, like the work that I, you know, the, the opportunity I have, as an academic, a paid academic to write a book, that's creative as an activity, very different from when I worked on a line, production line. Mm -hmm. So different reasons, academic, non-academic, where I was drawn into. And last thing on this, you know, I started writing on work 20 odd years ago. There wasn't much literature around then. Now there's loads of books on work. You know, know, my, my shelves are full of them, but, you know, but there, there lots of published over the last 10 years and 20 years ago, there weren't as many books around on work. So I, I, I sense a sort of rising interest in work. Work's always been interesting, always been important, but I sense that rising interest now, which sort of motivated me to contribute with my latest book. Yeah. I, 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 I do see that, that rise, that rising tide of, questions related to work. The fact that this is a pressing question right now, I think, you know, particularly following the collapse in 2008, there has been this reemergence of questioning, questioning the capitalist order and how we think about work and how it um, sort of vitiates every aspect of our lives. Um, So I, on that, I mean, I'm a sociologist, so I think um, we were on the work detail earlier in the 1930s, one of the studies that I remember as a young sociologist that um, just astonished me was the Hawthorne effect, the study that, you know, just paying attention to workers makes them more productive. It was all from the perspective of how do we increase industrial productivity, but it seemed to have implications for the meaning of work that, you know, people pay attention to you and you do more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think you make a really good point about sociology. <laughs> and the contribution it's made to work, there's a long-standing sort of sociology of work literature. That's not really apparent in economics. I think that that sort of, just again, as an aside here, you know, the way that economics has evolved as a discipline, it's sort of seeded ground to sociology. You know, the, the study of work is not something which economists do. It's what sociologists do. And that's all. And that, that, that's a real problem, I think, as well, in terms of this sort of false division of labor, where really we all should be studying work in its different dimensions. You know, the, the, the problem is sociology work, it neglects the sort of material dimension, the importance of wages, whereas the, the economists miss alienation or, and creative aspects of work. And that, that was another sort of motive for the book and another motive of my research is to try and promote a more integrative approach, a, a sort of a political economy approach. That's the term that I've, I've, I've ultimately uh, used uh, in this space to try and promote greater dialogue across boundaries and a more interdisciplinary efforts to study work. Cause I think it's important for us to do that. And that sort of draws in that sort of Hawthorne tradition. I mean, when I, when I was a student reading economics textbooks, I, I read, Michael Burroway's book, Manufacturing Consent, at the same time, which just and the interesting question he poses is, is why do workers work as much as they do? And that was the contrast with the economics literature I was learning, which was all about workers as shirkers. 
workers were avoiding work. You know, rational economic man is not a creator. He's he's a couch potato. He wants to avoid work where, you know, the complete opposite you get in Burrowar. You know, even in really bad jobs, people work because they find reason to work and work hard as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, there is that rich literature, but I think we need to work more closely and across those boundaries. Yeah, as a as a philosopher, I agree. A lot of a lot of philosophy on work neglects the kind of um, deep engagement with questions about you know economic considerations, and so oftentimes it ends up in sort of a purely theoretical rather than a kind of um, sort of interdisciplinary realm where we're able to combine the theoretical analysis with 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 grounded some grounded work. So getting into these questions about work, I do want to start out with a, a sort of singular question, and then maybe we can work from here. So I want to start with the question of how do you define work? Because you talk about work in a very particular way, and you see the possibility of work as a kind of um, meaningful pursuit. So how would you define work? Well, this is a really difficult question to answer. <laughs> Because it, it seems on the surface to be very easy, but it's not. Uh, and I think that, that there's two ways of trying to answer this question. One's in a sort of general trans-historical term, terms, and, and the other is more historical. I think if we want a sort of general uh, answer to what what is work, I, I would focus on work as an obligation. It work as something we're required to do, something we do uh, because we have to rather than because we want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's an instrumental activity in that sense. It, it's linked then to things like reproduction, economic reproduction. Uh, so I, 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 I see it as an obligation then and sort of not then relate it to things like pain and pleasure because pain and pleasure can come from non-work activities. So I think I think I, I link work to obligation to some sort of requirement and assess work as a necessity, uh, as a general definition of work. Marx talks about the realm of necessity, and I think that neatly captures what work is. It, it, it's an activity which is in this realm of necessity. It's something we're required to do. It may be something in the in the act of doing we may benefit from so it may not just be an instrumental activity but it, it has an instrumental uh function to it if you put it want to put it in those terms Th- that's my abstract general definition but we can't forget history uh in the sense that work is defined by social relations so work in the society which we live in uh takes the form of wage labor and that's something, you know, we work for wages. Uh, but that form of work's not all always existed. You know, we've had slave societies. We've had feudal societies. We might have different societies in the future where work's organized differently. Uh, so work is shaped by uh, social relations in that sense. And the, the, the predominant form now is wage labor. Another point to make, and this is something I don't really draw in my book, and I do admit this at one point, is that there are other types of work under capitalism. So unpaid work is important, work in the household, work for care, 
Uh, I don't really, it's a bit of a blind spot in my book. I focus much more on paid work and work in the economic realm. But I think unpaid work is another important form of work, which is uh, important for certain groups in society. Yeah, and in many ways captures that the concern about necessity, right? I mean, so even that form of unpaid work represents the kind of thing that is done for sort of instrumental ends within the realm of necessity, exactly as you say. I don't want to go on a detour, but um, do you have a quick thought about the call historically to um, to pay for housework or um, homework that is otherwise non-commodified? In other words, do you think that um, commodifying and um, compensating mostly women for the unpaid care work that they do, would that contribute to alienation or would that be a necessary step in, in recognizing that work? Okay, the wages for housework literature is something I've not looked into. I know there are sort of conflicting arguments there. I, th I think the more general point I would make there and in some ways avoiding directly your question is that I think there's an issue of how we value that work in society beyond wages. So the sense in which it's important work, uh, in some ways capitalism gets away with undervaluing it because it's lots of free work, but that, that works very important in reproducing the workforce, uh, you know, it, reproducing capitalism in that sense. So I think it's important to, uh, reveal it, uh, stress its importance. I think the issue then of how we value it is important. I think if we get the danger, I guess, if you, if you go down the sort of paid work point, you can sort of fetishize money or the, 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 the use of money when the, there's value beyond money. And in that sense, we, we ought to value it beyond just paying it. I guess as a short term measure, it would be good for people to be able to do that kind of activity uh, and be, you know, not then starve or go without, if you see what I mean. But I, I, I don't think the, the end of the problem would not be, it wouldn't end the problem by paying wages. I think that would be my response on that. Yeah. So, so, you know, in some ways this leads nicely into my, my next question, thinking about, you know, sort of the main thrust of your book and thinking about um, this kind of middle path that you chart between, and you don't use these terms, but I'm going to use these terms, the sort of socialist productivist position, perhaps we could say, where um, work is valorized sort of as a good in and of itself, almost independent of, of other values. Um, and then on the other hand, a sort of anti-work or post-work position, uh, a socialist position, which in many ways rejects um, uh, the sort of intrinsic value that we can find in work potentially. Um, so how do you think about these two positions? And you know, what are your reasons for believing this approach of sort of less but better work um, to chart this middle path? Okay, so I, th I think you're right. I don't draw a distinction between those two positions. I, th I think that, that and one of the reasons I didn't is because you can get into sort of straw people type alternatives. So, you, I mean, it, 
if you read Kathy Weeks's book, but the problem with work, she does talk, draw out this productivist uh, approach, and that's the idea that you know works good, uh, and you know we need to protect it. And the danger she sees there is that we end up promoting it. We eulogize work, and that leads to then the danger of creating more work when actually. Uh, there are important things beyond work and we ought to promote lives beyond work. And that leads into then that sort of anti-work type uh, agenda. Uh, I mean, the, the productivist is also sort of linked to sort of Soviet era type sort of, you know, dignifying work, you know, sort of posters, posters and propaganda pro promoting work, uh, which was in indeed similar to sort of capitalism, the sort of work ethic under, under socialism. Uh, which is not healthy because it then distracts from what are real costs of work uh, and also misses the agenda around reducing work. Uh, so we, we've got that. And then we've got the sort of anti-work post-work, which is in vogue at the moment. I see a lot of that here in the UK and I see it around uh, Europe, America, I guess as well. Uh, that's a rejection of work. So we get ideas that are sort of abolishing work. I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with both positions. I don't want to eulogize work, but I don't want to denigrate work to the point where I think it has no role in promoting well-being or, or a better society. Uh, and I want to move be one more motivation for writing the book was to try to move away from that sort of polarized position. And in some ways, and controversially, sort of reclaim Marx. Like, I, th I think that there is a middle way through the two. So the danger with a productivist view is we create more work. With the anti-work, it's all about getting rid of work, as, as if we can create a utopia with no work. I worry about that because we end up with the sort of, uh, you know, the, the was it that movie Wally type thing where we're on sort of surfboard or whatever the hoverboards and we're being fed and we're not doing anything. We've got no work, but life's not very good uh, in that sense. Not that the anti-work makes that view, but it, the danger is it can be uh, linked to that. So, so it's not more, it's not less work. It's a combination of better and less work that, that, that sort of middle way, which I think is more consistent with Marx more consistent and, and it's not in any way then uh you know less radical than any other approach i, I don't think it's uh, i think in some ways it's more radical because it's combining those two goals non-alienating labor on one side and more free time on the other and i think marx has that within his work uh and that is something which i drew out inspired me and i think think that there was a gap in, in there was a gap there in the literature and, and and one motivation for writing the book was to try and restate that case i think others have been saying this bellamy foster i think has made some similar arguments and and sean sayers who who's here in the uk written on marx and and made these arguments as well so i i want to sort of contribute to that strain of thought when COVID first started, I was kind of thrilled by the discourse around essential workers, mm -hmm. because it seemed like we were ha finally having a conversation about what is the realm of necessity and what is the realm of freedom, you know, even in work.
And it reminded me of Andre Gortz, who, who thought that that was kind of the first step in, in grappling with this, is that, yes, we may be moving towards less and less work, but we have to figure out how to redistribute all the essential work so that it gets done. Yeah, indeed. I, like you, uh, thought that one positive that came out of COVID, if, if we can talk of positives, was this idea of sort of a refocusing on what is essential work you know, work which is useful, not work that just creates commodities which companies can profit from. Sadly, though, that didn't last. You know, the, the COVID pandemic, you know, the post-pandemic po, post, po, post were sort of back to where we were before. Uh, so that critical discourse around work has not... Uh, persisted albeit those other currents i've mentioned the sort of anti-worker work arguments are still there so yeah so go, go, sorry go on well so i i want to i want to think through exactly how you think about the possibility of unalienated work that you talk about in your book um and in particular i find really interesting that you draw from william morris and his work, News from Nowhere, which was a response to um, Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward. Um, and in it, he describes and you describe um, the idea of work as a form of art. Um, and so I think that that combination of using Marx and talking about alienation, but as well thinking about work as art is very helpful. So I'd wonder if you want to you know, explore your vision of what better work really looks like what does it mean to to have unalienated labor but also what does it look like to have work that is artistic okay i don't think i've got my own vision i, I think the vision that i have is is derivative of, of of marx and you also morris i think morris is really interesting i think he's he, he's much neglected in modern debates on work but he has so many interesting things to say and so many valuable insights uh, drawn from his own lived experience as an artist and also his lived experience as a, as a business person. You know, he was hiring people in a factory in Lund Merton in London uh, and reorganized work to, to try and make it better under those conditions. Uh, so, and also he read Marx, he read Marx, uh, he was one of the few people, I think this is right, in, I'm right in saying, few people in Britain to read Marx. Uh, and he read the fr French uh, version of Capital, and it had a, a formative effect on him. It made him into a socialist. And it, 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 you can see the influence of Marx on his writings on work. Okay, what is work as art? Well, th this is this is Morris, I think, uh, seeing work not just as an instrumental activity but also as an activity which can be potentially creative something which can fulfill our creative needs as a human as humans uh, there is that dimension about using you know the the arts and crafts movement so about you know you know making uh, you know handmade furniture and that sort of stuff uh, which has the link to uh, art, arts and crafts indeed. 
I don't think it's just that though. I mean, because th- th- that's the uh, the problem with that is we, we lose mass production, we lose the ability to uh, fulfil societal needs. It's it's too backward looking in that sense. I think there are elements of that, but I think there's a progressive, forward looking element to uh, Morris, which goes beyond the use of crafts, uh, skill and craft in. Uh, work and that that is the idea of work as art involves work which is produces socially useful things yeah so and i think that this is you know in marx it terms, you know work, use value versus exchange value where we you know we produce things which are needed by society versus things which are produced because they're there to make a profit and that brings in the exchange value so work as art for uh, Morris was about work uh, creating socially useful things, things that society needed and valued. Yeah. But also there's other dimensions as well in terms of how work can contribute to a better environment. Yeah. Morris was ahead of the game, you know, in terms of ecological destruction. You know, he talked about, you know, city cities, you know, full of pollution, you know, destroying the natural environment. And th- that that was the opposite of workers' art. That was workers' destruction. And you know, what you know, art was workers' art was about beautifying the environment, making the world a nicer place to live in. You know, nice architecture, nice buildings, nice uh things around us uh so in that sense it it, it, it sort of this broader view of of creating great things and building a, a a great society uh one which is nice to live in uh one which keeps us healthy one that allows us to breathe in clean air uh to appreciate great architecture and great art you know we we don't have mass produced stuff necessarily uh, you know, shoddy stuff. We have nice things uh, there. I'm going on. Okay, but he he makes us this distinction between useful work and useless toil. I think that's interesting in terms of the useless toil is the sort of work which predominates under capitalism. It's exploitative. It's alienating. It's forced. It's about wages. It's about producing things for profit, not for need. And he contrasts that with useful work, which is about creating things which people appreciate, uh, fulfilling needs. Also, in that sense, giving people joyful things to do as well in work. So that importance about the importance of work being something which people can identify with and, and sustain them. Do you, do you have thoughts about Marx's ideas about the different modes of production and how it relates to alienation? Because the, I think there's an implication in his work that it's the commodification and under capitalism that really robs meaning from work. And you could, if you know, B.F. Schumacher argued that you know you could, if you were getting into the Zen of farming, that everyone would find enlightenment through that kind of work, but. Mark seems to suggest, well, we can't go back and we have to go forward to uh, uh, expanding the realm of freedom so that everyone finds their individual meaning and in work. So 
do you think that the kind of development of the means of production changes the kind of meaning that we can find under work? Yes, I, I think into the mode of production idea you presented, first of all, is important, I think, because it, it, it brings out the issue of sort of power relationships in, in the sense that, sort of, you know, there's forms of exploitation and alienation in pre-capitalist societies. You know, the slave-slave owner relationship is exploitative and it's alienating for the slave. Uh, and then we get the sort of power dynamics under capitalism between the wage labor and the capitalist. So it, it, power matters in that context, in defining that relationship and defining the form of exploitation and alienation which exists uh, under those different societies. It also gives us then the possibility of a different form of relationship, one where there isn't that same power relationship, but rather there's some sort of uh, cooperative relationship uh, where power relations are not uh, manifest, but more there's cooperative production to for need rather than for profit. And under, tho under those conditions, we can promote progressive outcomes and avoid then exploitation and alienation. I, th I think then just jumping back to Morris, but also lining up with the points that I've made about Marx, I think it's, you know, that workers are also, it implies radical changes in society, you know, in terms of how productions, uh, the, you know, the goals of production and also crucially, and I think this is, relates to some of the points you were making, you know, the, the way that productions are organized as well, this is some, you know, a more democratic structure to production, worker ownership, worker involvement in decision-making, cooperative relations within the workplace, fostering then cooperative outcomes, and also then fostering the opportunity for that combination of better work and less work. So we, we you know, the, the, the idea then that we, we would harness technology to reduce work hours, but also then harness technology to create more opportunities for people to do good work, but also a, a, avoid bad work. I mean, Morris was good on this. Morris talked about this in detail about, you know, how we might, you know, reorientate technology to, to reducing drudgery. So the objective then of production was to minimize pain in work and not minimize work as such. And I think this is this is where I think Morris can teach uh, sort of post-worker uh, advocates some things today. You know, the idea that it's not about eliminating work as such, it's about eliminating work, which is not good, and create space for us to do work, which is beneficial, adds to our well-being. That's not to eulogize work in the sense that I can see the scope for a life beyond work, but work has its place. Work can contribute. What? Why deny that? Let's think, rethink work. Let's embrace what good ideas we have both in Mar Marx and Morris on that recreation of work, that conversion of work into something better than it is now. So on this issue of the sort of drudgery of work, I know that, a large portion of your work is is focusing on questions about subjective well-being um, and and worker well-being. And I, I I wonder if we could 
talk a little bit about what kinds of things actually designate things like drudgery and work and whether or not measurements um, like happiness, you know, subjective happiness are good measurements for us figuring out whether or not we are successful in reforming work. And if not, what alternatives do we have um, in terms of things that we can actively measure in thinking about work reform um, and in this positive sort of non-drudgery direction? Okay. I, sh I should say I'm skeptical about subjective measures of well-being because they're subject to lots of different biases and also that the things like adaptation affect the scores that I give to surveys. And there's the danger that a sort of happy slave type situation where the slave responds in a survey that they're happy because they've adapted to their situation. Does that mean that the slave has a good life? No, because objectively it's not a good life. They're being subjugated. They're being denied their freedom. Uh, and that, you know, you can relate that in, you know, there's sort of happy peasant type situation where there's, we, we have to at least treat critically those survey uh, results. I do make that point in my book in that I'm, I'm inclined to a more objective view of, well, of a more objective uh, view of the quality of work, one which focuses more on the dimensions of work, whether work ha gives autonomy, whether work offers uh, scope for skill development, those sorts of things. Now they're difficult to measure, uh, but they give some sense of where I'm coming from in terms of thinking about what objective conditions need to be in place for well-being to be achieved. Uh, I'm not then suggesting that we can't measure well-being in subjective terms, but my primary focus is on objective conditions, if that makes sense. Uh, so that... Uh, I'm, <laughs> Are you familiar with capabilities theory? Because that you seem to be addressing some of the same area there that hedonic measures of life are not going to get us very far in measuring a full flourishing life and so forth. Indeed, yeah. So Amata Sen's work, I I have drawn upon. I think that has merit. It also has limits, but uh, that capability approach indeed is an effective uh, challenge and rebuttal to to hedonic measures uh, as you put it what's interesting here is people like david graber in his book do he relies on a subjective measure of well-being so if i report in a survey that my job is bullshit i then take that on face value that my job's bullshit even though i may be a corporate lawyer you know and a corporate because you know, he does class that as, as as one sort of bullshit job uh sorry the language but that's the, the title of his book but there you know and that's deeply problematic for me because what we miss then is the fact that the corporate law is really well paid got lots of discretion uh so i and i i, I did devote a chapter in my book to challenging some of graber's uh ways of thinking about and defining work so i think i would uh draw back from that subjective approach, use a more objective approach. When I say that, though, I'm conscious at the same time, there are difficulties faced in, uh, well, just the basic measurement issue. Uh, nonetheless, though, 
I think it's always good to focus on objective conditions because it gives us some sense of, you know, what is and what could be in, and also gives us some guidance in terms of reform. We're not dealing with feelings. We're dealing with what are objective conditions. And I think, again, Marx is really good at this because he talks about structural conditions, limiting agency. And his argument there is that we ought to change the structure to uh, improve the agency. Uh, and he has particular uh, ways of arguing that for that but his agency is a rich view of agency at the same time it's an agency view in corporate a, a rich understanding of alienation but then also the some idea of the opposite of alienation you know the idea of you know free creative activity and that you know you know the achievement of that i think still resonates and it, it certainly keeps me going as an idea so uh, the idea of achieving a world in which work can, to the extent that we can make it, become can become free creative activity, I think forces us to think about whether or not that kind of work can be available to all, right? Um, and you devote a chapter in your work to talking about, you know, this question of high quality work for all and whether or not it's it's possible, right? So, you know, in some circles, this is talked about as contributive justice. Um, um, and, and so you make this case for the possibility of high quality work for all, or, or at least to the greatest extent possible. So I want to think, you know, how can that be achieved, um, while sort of avoiding some of the issues related to, you know, occupational choice, um, specialization, you know, this is something, again, going back to Andre Gortz, this is something that Gortz talks about sort of the sharing of, of necessary work. So. I wonder how we we build a, a world where high quality work is is genuinely available to all. Okay, in this context, I set a really high bar, and I I, I sort of I I make the argument that that we we ought to have it as a goal, uh, but then recognize it will be difficult to achieve for various different reasons. And I, I go through in the book arguments for uh, spreading the uh, the no increasing the number and and spreading the distribution of, of good jobs or meaningful jobs, uh, and then potential counter arguments. And I try to make the case that on balance uh, we can certainly increase the number. There will always be barriers to it for various different reasons. You know, job specialization, for example. You know, the idea is that because I'm a university lecturer and I can only be good I, I can only be good at a university lecturer if I devote all my time to being a university lecturer. So that, that implies then that I hoard that position and that, you know, my bin in my office, the cleaner has to uh come in and empty it. Right. The, I give that example. Andrew Sayer in his book gives that as an example. And I think it's a really good example. What's to stop me as a lecturer emptying my bin? Nothing. If I did it, the cleaner wouldn't have to do it. And the cleaner could potentially do another job, which doesn't involve cleaning, where cleanings doesn't contribute to contributive justice because it's not recognized. And it doesn't. Well, it does contribute, but it's not. Its contribution is minimal relative to other types of uh 
jobs, although a cleaner in a hospital is massively important because without the cleaner in the hospital, we'll all get lots of bad diseases. Uh, so the specialization argument can be challenged on the basis we can share some of those duties or those tasks. So I can do some, let's call it bad work at the same time as doing some of this good work, like talking to you. Uh, the other is a change in, in the structures, of the organizations in which we work. So why should the cleaner not have a similar say to me in the governance of the university? Controversial, I know. Uh, but that's sort of democratizing the spaces in which we uh, work and that's sort of giving voice to people. So that sense in which then if they have a voice, they may then look to change the way that works organized, maybe then challenge me as a lecturer to do more cleaning. It may challenge the organization to uh, give opportunities for those at the lowest rung of the ladder to move up through training. Right. What I'm trying to demonstrate is sort of reimagining of the current hierarchy and try to create then space for change and move to a situation where it's not just a few who hoard all the good job opportunities, but rather those good opportunities are spread more widely. So I, th I don't think specialization is necessarily a barrier. And I go through others in the book, you know, like cleaning jobs. Well, some argue they're really bad and we can't get rid of them. Okay, well, let's get robots to do them. Then. Automate them. That's what, again, you know, Morris was good on this. He, he wanted, you know, automate drudgery, get rid of it and leave us with the good parts of the job. Live debate about that with all, you know, all, every day I'm, confronted with AI type stories. I've yet to hear a story about an AI robot, an AI type robot that can clean my bathroom. Uh, you know, I'm, we, it's not profitable to do so, I guess, but uh, so in an ideal world, automation would be used to reduce those bad jobs and create opportunity for others to do uh good or better jobs. So I, I set a high bar, but I think, I'm, again, uh, I'm inspired by both Morris and Marx to think that that might be possible. And if it's not possible now, it might be possible in the future. And in that sense, let's think, think about the conditions uh, which are needed to achieve it, to bring it closer. It, is creative and intellectual work a universal good for workers? Um, or is it something that the fact that some people don't want to do it now is because of the alienated conditions of labor and that in the future, everyone would discover their internal creative being? Right. That's a, it's a really interesting question. If I reflect on my own practice, I won't draw either of you into the discussion. You know, I, I, I've, you know, I, my dad was a sheet metal worker. He, you know, I was the first in my family to go to university and he had, I remember I used to pass this university because I live, uh, I come from the, I used to pass this university on the bus and it was like a completely alien place. Cause I used to go to my dad when my dad worked on the shop floor, which was a huge cavernous building, filthy, awful smell, dark. It was a dark satanic mill type situation. And, you know, 
this seemed like some sort of paradise nirvana, you know, where all people were just spending their time reading books and, you know, intellectual labor dominated rather than the manual labor in the factory. Okay. That, that was idealistic. I've learned because, uh, you know, we've got lots of pressures on us to, to publish, to, to, to get good student ratings, those sorts of things. I think those things have got worse over the last few years with the sort of the move to more neoliberal if inverted commas university. Uh, and that leads to more alienation. I think a, a more sort of separation between the good intellectual labor and the more instrumental intellectual labor. Uh, so I, I think yes. Uh, trends are sort of pushing us away from what is, what can be in essence, good work and making it less good. But that, though, again, reinforces the fact that it's, it's structures matter, the, the material conditions matter, but they're not given. They can change. And, you know, we can, we can, we can progress things. You know, the idea, I'm, when I think about my students, I think of teaching my students, I think, I think of Ruskin when he was at Oxford. He, he got them, you know, he wanted to combine intellectual labor with manual labor. So he used to get them to build roads or help build roads. And that, that sense in which it's not just intellectual labor in that sense. I'm thinking, you know, manual labor may have its uh, role. You know, I'd love to be able to, uh, you know, use a lathe. I'm being very masculine here and I apologize for that, but that's my reference point thinking my, my dad. Uh, but I don't know how to do it because I'm I'm sort of siloed into doing what I'm doing when I may be a good lathe operator. I don't know. Maybe if I did that all the time, I'd be bored, though. So that sort of variety in work. And that's another thing which Morris brings out as well, the idea that we rotate tasks. And that might be another way of uh, preventing people from just doing the same, what might be a stultifying activity all the time. Well, access to power tools is probably the most benign solution to the crisis of masculinity that's been proposed. So. <laughs> I, could, I could see that being a benign social policy. So, um, you know, on, on this issue of thinking about um, variety, um, you know, one of, the, one of the core arguments is that you make is not just that we need better work, but of course that we need less work. Um, and so this then gets into the sort of realm of leisure um, and thinking about the variety that our lives can take on in our leisure activities. But, you know, one of the problems that many people have pointed out, including, you know, the critical theorists, is that leisure is deeply alienated as well. Um, and the way that we sort of approach leisure is almost as a, as a mechanism for consumption. Um, and there's even a kind of fear that leisure, um, even if leisure is just simply for rest, ends up becoming a tool in service for work rather than sort of external skill development beyond work. So I wonder how you think about leisure and what leisure would look like under these same kinds of conditions. You know, what does unalienated leisure look like um, in this kind of future that you're imagining? Okay. Well, I think, I think leisure is less than it could be uh, in terms of the form that it takes under modern society. So the, the sort of leisure of shopping, 
le- leisure is consuming uh where you know it's passive it, it's uh linked to norms which are capitalistic in nature uh and an, one could argue that they're not uh freely undertaken but rather a uh, cultivated by the type of culture which exists, consumption-focused, profit-orientated culture that we live in. Uh, there's also that you, 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 the point, you know, sort of rest as as not good, and and the sort of guilt associated with that, the idea that we 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 ought to be working at, uh, rather than being at rest, and that that sort of creates a sort of paradox where we have to shop. And work, and then the the days have run out, and there's you know we have to go back to work and start the cycle again. Uh, and often works about reco- sorry, often leisure is about recovery from work. So you know the idea I'm I'm going on holiday to recharge my batteries. Why? Because I want to work more effectively after the holidays. Not not that I want to go. I I want to explore things. I want to develop new interests but more it's recovery time and lots of time spent as well outside of work making myself better for work you know in terms of developing skills or networking you know this idea that i've got to network all the time to get on so i mean one name we've not mentioned is Keynes, and Keynes is economic possibilities for our grandchildren, which is again, really good piece. And it has overlaps with Marx in terms of his vision of a sort of unalienated leisure, leisured future where, you know, he, he has a, this idea of sort of the pursuit of money and the spending of money being sort of uh, an immoral type of activity or it's, it's, it's morbid. It, it's, it's not, it's not welfare inducing. It's, it's welfare reducing reducing and the idea that we we need to go beyond this we need to find other ways of living non-materialist ways of living he he has this sort of bloomsbury image of the future you know sort of writing uh making plays gardening cultivating nature uh a very middle class view of the world i would say uh because the danger with that is that we sort of denigrate tv watching and sport when they can be really good. You know, I, I I support Leeds United and they've just got relegated from the Premier Division. But when I go to games, I'm fascinated by the analysis of, you know, my, my fellow spectators. They've got a deep knowledge of the game, much better than my knowledge, and that's through experience. My, my point there is that there are other forms of knowledge which can be cultivated outside the work, work environment, which has merit and importance. Uh... No, Chomsky so, once so, once observed yeah. that if workers spend as much mental energy on democracy as they did on sports, we'd have socialism by now. But well, that's uh, that's the problem. It's a great distraction, indeed. Uh, but would sport survive under socialism? I think it probably would do, but it'd have a different form. Uh, but then we may be distracted from other things still by sport. I think it's having, it's having other interests beyond work. It's having being free or freer to pursue those interests. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I actually, I think football is a great example because historically football clubs have become 
and you know existed as sort of bastions of community solidarity and Simon Critchley in his book how what we talk about when we talk about football makes the link in the first chapter between socialism and and football clubs um you'll hate me for this um particularly because I'm from the United States but I'm a Manchester United fan so but I I <laughs> you can you can log off the zoom call if you feel the need to but I apologize Is that Ted Lasso's team <laughs> Uh, bitter rivals of Leeds. So apologies. You'll walk away from this feeling feeling hatred towards me, I'm sure. But <laughs> um, but I, I I do find that that very valuable thinking about you know what would leisure look like in a post-capitalist world. And I I often think you know reimagining those things that we tend to denigrate because of the way that they appear to us under capitalism, like sport but are deeply meaningful to people in many ways. I think reimagining those kinds of leisure activities um, is incredibly important in the same way that we ought to imagine reimagine work, reimagining leisure um, such that it can be unalienating and solidaristic seems incredibly valuable. Yep. I've always been fascinated by organized fandom as a kind of uh, leisure. You know, the, it provides mm -hmm. a sense of community, but it's in the service of profit-making culture industry. So it's this weird amalgam. Yeah, but I mean, but but the sense in which, though, that people are self-organizing beyond the work realm. Uh, I mean, that's problematic in the sense the work realm does create some solidarity. But leaving that to one side, there there is a sense in which people are trying to escape work through video games and these sorts of and these social networks, which I don't know that much about. My daughters will tell me about uh, that creates possibilities, though, doesn't it, of, of, of organisation? The problem, I guess it's too fragmented and it's got no politics, political dimension to it, but th 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 there is scope there. J just on this, though, in terms of unalienated leisure and the vision of that, Marx is really bad. <laughs> I mean, what, what Marx has, that's the only, he, get, he comes close to it with his sort of, herding cattle in the morning and all the rest of it, you know, uh, and criticizing after dinner. It's sort of a, it's, it's sort of a, a pre-capitalist view of leisure. You know, it does, it's not forward thinking. It doesn't help us in understanding what leisure might be. Right. What, what I think the reason Marx did this, because I think one of the reasons he did it, this me speculating, the sense in which he felt like you couldn't, fully understand the potential for leisure because of the the ingrained capitalist habits of thought and the, this idea that the imagination would come once we go beyond it and that sort of uh, the owl of minerva will fly forth at midnight and wisdom will come uh sort of hegel type idea there uh although when i say that i think he could have set down a little bit more i mean you know, that country gentleman type view of the world is not that helpful. That's why I think Morris is more helpful because he, he writes a novel and he, he writes beautifully in other places to try and give us some sort of vision. Uh, and the sense then in which we move to a position where we, we don't just spend our time meaningfully outside of work, we also spend our time meaningfully in work and that combination of meaningful work and meaningful leisure 
I think is an important one. But within that, you know, work would be reduced uh, and there'd be more time for these other things, whatever these other things might be. So perhaps maybe a, a final final few questions here. But on this issue of, of leisure, you, you address universal basic income. You address um, questions about full employment. Um, and I, I wonder if you can say, you know, how you think about these tools in terms of their, their value. Also, four-day work week, which has gained an, an enormous amount of steam through various trials over the past several years. Um, you know, I know your, your main objective is thinking about ownership models, really how ownership models and, and democratic ownership of our work is really in many ways the, the main feature that we ought to be focusing on. But I wonder, you know, thinking about full employment, thinking about universal basic income, thinking about four-day work week, are these tools that are um, enabling for workers or are they sort of um, placating because they're often these two different positions, right? A universal basic income is a, is a tool that, um, provides a kind of exit strategy for workers, but on the other hand, it could be used as a kind of consumption mechanism. So what, what are your views on, on those reforms? Okay. In no particular order, full employment, I think is important as a short-term measure in terms of improving the bargaining power of workers. So in that sense, you know, goals like a four-day week uh, and reductions in inequality are more likely to occur with full employment. I think. I think. I'm sure in the U.S. I looked at some data recently that the pay of low pay, the low paid, is rising through tight labor markets. So I think. I think that's a good thing. I, the the issue there would be that I wouldn't be obsessed with full employment in the sense that there's goals beyond f- full employment. Again, this is where. You know, Keynes is good. Keynes had this, you know, short run view of the world. But, you know, he's famous for that in the long run, we're all dead. But quote, but I think he offers us a really positive vision of a of a in the long run, we'll live well and we'll live well be, because full employment will create an opportunity for. Uh, I was going to say, you know, full unemployment, you know, the opposite, the idea that, you know, we'll, we'll have more free time and in that sense so i think full employment yes has a role universal basic income i'm sort of agnostic on that i I can see the arguments for it my concern my specific concern with it is that it neglects the need for reforms at work you know the, the idea that somehow magically on the back of a universal basic income work will improve well no it won't i think if the if you if if you force me to accept a UBI, I'd, I'd I'd accept it alongside a series of other reforms, including those in the workplace. Otherwise, we could end up with a UBI where workers are doing the same work, and that doesn't really seem to be progress to me. Uh, so, uh, I think UBI has its limits. Uh, four day week. Yes, I think that's good in terms of creating space for more critical ideas. Uh, you know, we shouldn't be just stopping at a four-day week. We should be thinking beyond that. Uh, I'd settle for it, though, as a sort of 
uh, intermediate goal. It, I've been struck. I've been writing on the four day week for about 20 years and been completely in the wilderness, like much of my work. Uh, but now over the last two, three years, suddenly a massive upswell uh, of interest in it. A lot of it is backed by business, I think. Business interest, which is fueling it. So maybe as some sort of marketing device for some. Controversial, that point. but uh, So I think it, it's good. It creates space for that wider debate and promotes you know, the ideas, some of the ideas that we've... Uh, discussed just just on the ubi idea you know in sociology we talk about exit and voice mm -hmm. and ubi would give workers more power of exit um, but wouldn't but you're saying it wouldn't necessarily increase their voice in the firm but wouldn't workers being able to exit more freely force firms to provide more worker empowerment yes uh but why can't we address the problem at source? I think, you know, if there's a problem at work, we need to recognize that and then address, seek to address it. So this again, the UBI seems to be focused very much on giving people money. And there's the other dimensions to, you know, uh, to address such as I think, issues of work reform so I, I agree with that it increases bargaining power potentially i think the issue then is what level it's at uh but yes i can see that argument but let, let, let's let's couple it with with other reforms you know and to your point about um the four-day work week uh, being backed by business I do think that's a particularly interesting paradox where the way that the way that the reduction of the working week is talked about is almost purely in productivist terms. And oftentimes we're not talking about it in terms of, you know, objective well-being, um, the pursuit of activities beyond work. And so I always get a little bit squeamish when we're talking just purely in productivist terms and, and advocating for the reduction of the work week in some ways you know it's a it's a political strategy because that's how you can get as many stakeholders on board but at the same time there's a way in which the values which we are trying to actively uh, subvert are being sort of reinserted back into this conversation yep that's a really good point uh it, it makes me reflect on on you know when marx was talking when when Marx was discussing the factory acts in the UK, and it, I think chapter ten of of Capital Volume One, and what he what he outlines there is how employers ultimately came round to supporting the factory acts. Why? Because they found that they were they leading to higher productivity. You know, working workers seventy hours is not is not good business. It leads to you know workers being you know dying early, being exhausted. So. They were forced into it by the state, but then ultimately backed it because they could see the benefits. But the benefits were economic benefits in that sense. They weren't seeing uh, the other benefits. So I think there is a narrowness to that debate. But the reason I think it's worth engaging with is that it, it does create that space to, to promote the other ideas that, again, we've been discussing. So... Uh... Final question. Um, in, in your book, you uh, 
you know, you do a great job of detailing the drudgery of work under capitalism, the possibility to to build an unalienated working future. Um, and this is a this is a terrible question to ask because it's really it's a difficult question. Um, but it's the it is the I think the big question, which is how do we get from here to there? Um, and, you know, maybe we were just talking about it in terms of thinking about these kinds of reforms, but you know, in terms of social and political action, where do you suggest, where do you imagine we ought to be putting our effort behind in terms of trying to ameliorate the, the kinds of drudgery experienced uh, through work under capitalism? Okay, that, that really is a big question. I mean, from my own side, I, I try and write books and I try and write articles which promote the case for change. And uh, I'm I'm not linked to any sort of, you know, activist groups or anything. Uh, maybe I should. I don't know. But I, I, so I I'm working in one little narrow furrow in the hope that somehow some how I can sometime I can have an influence. I, okay, I, I think it's a massive step from where we are now to sort of realize the vision that I outline in the book. I think it's still important to outline a vision though, and I think that's important because it guides us, it inspires. You know, you and it's not utopian thinking in the sort of abstract, unrealistic sense. It's more the idea of something to inspire us to action and change. Okay, I mean, you know, there's, there's a labor movement. There's, uh, you know, unions are important. Uh, other activist groups. I, I, I do see lots of there's recurring economic crises which are calling into question the system there's the ecological crisis so what i see there is through these crises that momentum will build for alternatives uh i mean at the same time there's the rise of the right which worries me and you know in your country the you know the trump potentially coming back so there's these different political currents uh i am by nature a pessimist but then uh i write with the hope that things can change uh i can't say to you that change when change will happen or i and i can't say how it will happen necessarily so i'm disappointing you on this but are things going to stay the same no uh History shows us things change. Uh, capitalism's only been with us, what, 250 years, something like that. Who's to say what's going to happen in 50 years? So uh, I think there's reasons for change. I think the, there are the conditions for change. Uh, there's lots of uncertainties at the same time. Uh I think there's interesting alternative ideas as well. Uh, so that gives me some hope that change will happen. Does that answer your question? I'm not sure, but it, best it, I can. it answers it as best as it can be answered. I, I told you that's an awful question to ask anybody, but I, I feel the need to ask it because it's, um, I, I think it's helpful to, to hear people reflect on possibilities for a better future, even if they feel very, very utopian and i will say your book which again is making light work it, it doesn't come across as pessimistic it comes across as very optimistic so perhaps 
in your writing, you're much more optimistic than in your than in your own day to day life. But it, it certainly comes across as optimistic work. That that's good to hear. I I think I think you know going back to the early days, it's, it's sort of a creative outlet. It's something you know where you can sort of use the book as a way to sort of uh, channel your hope, even if in your head. Uh, things may seem bad and you're pessimistic. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to throw out a pessimistic book, am I either? <laughs> uh, I'm, but at the same time, I'm a humble and obscure writer. Nobody, hardly anybody reads my work. So uh, hopefully others on the back of this will read it. Uh, I, I, one or two others may be inspired. I don't know, but yeah. Millions of people are benefiting from your work through chat GPT. You just don't get the credit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that, that, that's an example, surely, of alienation again, isn't it? And, uh, and the loss of power and the, the 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 way that capitalism commodifies us in some ways. But yeah, and our work. Yeah, and there's there's a great case there for for socialism purely on the basis of our sort of contributions that have have built things like ChatGPT. So. Well, David, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you and um, I hope we stay in touch in the future and I hope that all the listeners to this podcast will check out your book, Making Light Work. Very much appreciate it. Thanks well, I really coming. appreciate it. I've, I, I've really enjoyed it and thank you for the great questions and it's really nice to meet both of you and hopefully, yes, a few people will be inspired to read the book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.